Chapter 1 Abraham Faith and Obedience Many people are afraid of the will of God, but one of the sweetest lessons we can learn as Christians is to surrender our wills to God, allowing Him to plan and rule our lives. If I know my own mind and could plan my life, what would I do? If an angel would come from the throne of God and tell me that I could have my will done all the days of my life and that everything I wished for would be carried out, or else I could refer it back to God and let God's will be done in me and through me, what would I do? I think in an instant I would say, let the will of God be done. I cannot look into the future. I don't know what is going to happen tomorrow. In fact, I don't know what might happen before tonight, so I cannot choose for myself as well as God can choose for me. It is much better to surrender my will to God's will. Abraham learned this himself. He surrendered to God in four different areas of his life, and these four surrenders give us a good key to his life. Abraham's First Surrender In the first place, Abraham was called to give up his family and his native country and to go out, not knowing where he was to go. While others were busy building up Babylon, God called this man out of that nation of the Chaldeans. He lived down near the mouth of the Euphrates, maybe 300 miles south of Babylon, when he was called to go into a land that he perhaps had never heard of before, and he was told to possess that land. In the twelfth chapter of Genesis, we read of a promise that God made to Abram. Scripture But the Lord had said unto Abram, Depart out of thy country, and from thy nature, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless those that bless thee, and curse those that curse thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed out of Haran. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1-4 through 4. God had first told Abram to leave Ur of the Chaldees several years before this. He went to Haran, which is about halfway between the valley of the Euphrates and the valley of the Jordan. God had called him into the land of the Canaanites, and he went halfway and stayed there. We do not know how long he stayed there, but it was probably about five years. I believe there are a great many Christians who are what we might call Haran Christians. They go to Haran, and there they stay. They only half obey. They are not fully obedient. How was it that God got him out of Haran? Abram's father died. The first call was to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go into Canaan, but instead of going all the way, they stopped halfway. It was affliction that drove Abram out of Haran. Many of us bring afflictions on ourselves because we are not completely living for the Lord. We do not always obey Him fully. God had plans He wanted to work out through Abram, and He could not work them out as long as He was at Haran. Affliction came, and then we find that He left Haran and started for the Promised Land. There is just one word here about Lot, and Lot went with him. That is the key, you might say, to Lot's life. He was a weaker character than Abram, and he followed his uncle. When they reached the land that God had promised to give him, Abram found it already inhabited by great and warlike nations, not by one nation, but by a number of nations. What could he, a solitary man in that land, do? 
Not only was his faith tested by finding the land inhabited by other strong and hostile nations, but he had only been there a little while when a great famine came upon the land. No doubt Abram experienced a great conflict in his heart, and he probably said to himself, What does this mean? Here I am thirteen hundred miles away from my own land and surrounded by a warlike people. Not only that, but a famine has come, and I must get out of this country. I don't believe that God sent Abram down to Egypt. I think he was only testing him so that he might be drawn nearer to God in his time of darkness and trouble. I believe that many times of trouble and sorrow are permitted to come to us so that we may see the face of God, that we might be compelled to trust in Him alone. Abraham's Second Surrender Abram became rich, but we don't hear of any altar after he left Canaan. In fact, we hear of no altar at Haran, and we hear of no altar in Egypt. When he came up with Lot out of Egypt, they had great possessions. They had increased in wealth, and their herds had multiplied until there was conflict among their herdsmen. Now Abram's character shines again. He could have said that he had a right to the best of everything because he was older and because Lot probably would not have been worth anything if it had not been for Abram's help. But instead of standing up for his right to choose the best of the land, he surrendered that right and said to his nephew, Take your choice. If you go to the right hand, I will take the left. Or if you prefer the left hand, then I will go to the right. Here is where Lot made his mistake. If there was ever a man under the sun who needed Abram's counsel, prayers, and influence, it was Lot. He needed to be surrounded by Abram's friends. Lot was just one of those weak characters who needed to be bolstered up, but his covetous eye looked upon the well-watered plains of the Jordan Valley that reached out toward Sodom, and he chose them. He was influenced by what he saw. He walked by sight instead of by faith. I think that is where a great many Christians make their mistake. They walk by sight instead of by faith. If Lot had stopped to think, he might have realized that it would be disastrous to him and his family to go anywhere near Sodom. Abram and Lot both must have known about the wickedness of those cities on the plains. Although they were rich and there was the chance of making money, Lot should have kept his family out of that wicked city. However, his eyes fell upon the well-watered plains and he pitched his tent toward Sodom and separated from Abram. Notice that after Abram allowed Lot to have his choice, Lot left for the plains, and God had Abram alone for the first time. His father had died at Haran, and he had left his brother Nahor there. Now, after Lot left him, Abram moved to Haran and built an altar to the Lord. Hebron means communion. It is here that God came to Abram and said, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art, towards the Aqualon and to the Negev, and to the east and to the west, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if someone could number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it, and in the breadth of it, for I must give it unto thee. Then Abram removed his tent, and came and dwelt among the terebinth trees of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 18. It is astonishing how far you can see in that country. God took Moses up on Mount Pisgah and showed him the promised land. 
In the land of Israel a few years ago, I found that from the Mount of Olives I could look over and see the Mediterranean Sea. I could look into the Jordan Valley and see the Dead Sea. From the plains of Sharon, I could look up to Mount Lebanon and Mount Hermon, way beyond Nazareth. With the naked eye, you can see almost the entire length and breadth of that country. So when God said to Abram that he should look to the north, and as far as he could see he could have the land, and then look to the south with its well-watered plains that Lot coveted, and then look to the east and the west, from the sea to the Euphrates, then God gave his friend Abram a clear title to the land with no conditions whatever. God said, I will give it all to you. Lot chose all he could get, but it was not much. Abram let God choose for him, and God gave him all the land. Lot had no security for his choice, and he soon lost it all. Abram's right to his land was maintained undisputed by God, the giver. Do you know that the children of Israel never had faith enough to take possession of all that land as far as the Euphrates? If they had, Nebuchadnezzar would probably have never come and taken them captive. But that was God's offer. He said to Abram, Unto thy seed shall I give this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. From that time on, God enlarged Abram's tents. He enriched his promises and gave Abram much more than he had promised down in the valley of the Euphrates when he first called him out. It is very interesting to see how God kept adding to the promise for the benefit of his friend Abram. Let us consider Lot now and see what he gained by making the choice he did. I believe that we can find 5,000 lots to every Abram today. People are constantly walking by sight, lured by the temptations of people and of the world. Men are very anxious to get their sons into lucrative positions, although it may be disastrous to their character. It can ruin them morally and religiously and in every other way. The glitter of this world seems to attract them. Someone has said that Abram was a far-sighted man, and Lot was a short-sighted man, for Lot's eyes fell on the land immediately around him. There is one thing that we are quite sure of. He was so short-sighted that he soon lost his possessions. We find that people who are constantly taking the quickest or easiest way out are often disappointed. I have no doubt that the men of Sodom told Lot that he was a much shrewder man than his uncle Abram, and that if he lived twenty-five years longer, he would be the richer of the two. They might have told him that by coming into Sodom, he could sell his cattle and sheep and goats and whatever else he had for large sums and get a much better deal than Abram could back on the plains of Mamre. For a while, Lot might have made money very quickly and might have become a very successful man. If we had gone into Sodom a little while before destruction came, we might have found that Lot owned some of the best corner lots in town, and Mrs. Lot moved in what they called the Bonton Society, or the elite and sophisticated class of people. We would have found that she was at the theater two or three nights a week. If they played cards, she probably played as well as anybody, and her daughters may have danced as well as any other Sodomites. We find Lot sitting in the gates, getting on amazingly well. He might have been one of the principal men in the city. Maybe he was Judge Lot or the Honorable Lot of Sodom. If there had been a Congress in those days, he may have run for a seat in Congress, or they might have elected him Mayor of Sodom. He was getting on amazingly well and was wonderfully prosperous. But after a while, war was upon them. 
If you decide to live in Sodom, you must take part in Sodom's judgment when it comes, for it is bound to come. The battle turned against those five cities of the plain, and they took Lot and his wife and all that they had. One man escaped and ran to Hebron and told Abram what had taken place. Abram took his servants, three hundred and eighteen of them, and went after these victorious kings. He soon returned with all the plunder and all the prisoners, including Lot and his family. Abraham's Third Surrender On Abram's way back with the plunder, one of the strangest scenes of history occurs. Abram met Melchizedek, who brought out bread and wine. The priestly king blessed the father of the faithful, and the old king of peace blessed Abram. Then Abram met the king of Sodom, who said to Abram, You take the money, and I will take the people. Abram replied, I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet. I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say, I have made Abram rich. Genesis chapter 14, verse 23. This was another surrender, a temptation to get rich at the hands of the king of Sodom. But the king of Salem had blessed him, so this world did not tempt him. It tempted Lot, and no doubt Lot thought Abram made a great mistake when he refused to take this wealth. But Abram would not touch a thing. He spurned it and turned from it. He had the world under his feet. He was living for another world. He would not be enriched from such a source. Each one of us is met by the prince of this world and the prince of peace. The one tempts us with wealth, pleasure, and ambition, but our prince and priest is ready to help and strengthen us in the hour of temptation. A friend of mine told me some years ago that his wife was very fond of painting, but for a long time he could not see any beauty in her paintings. They all looked blurry to him. One day his eyes troubled him and he went to see an optometrist. The man looked in amazement at him and said, You have what we call a short eye and a long eye, and that makes everything blurry. The optometrist gave him some glasses that fit him, and he could see clearly. Then he said that he understood why it was that his wife was so carried away with art. He built an art gallery and filled it with beautiful things, because everything looked so beautiful to him after he got his eye problem straightened out. There are many people who have a long eye and a short eye, and they make miserable work of their Christian life. They keep one eye on the eternal city and the other eye on the well-watered plains of Sodom. That was the way it was with Lot. He had a short eye and a long eye. It would be pretty hard work to believe that Lot was saved if it were not for the New Testament. But we read that God delivered just Lot, who was persecuted by those abominable people because of their nefarious conversation. For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, afflicted his righteous soul from day to day with the deeds of those unjust people. 2 Peter 2, verses 7-8 through Lot's soul was vexed. He had a righteous soul, but he had a stormy life. He didn't have peace and joy and victory like Abram. After Abram had given up the wealth of Sodom that was offered to him, God came and enlarged his borders again. He enlarged the promise. God said, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Genesis chapter 15 verse 1. Abram might have thought that these kings he had defeated might get other kings and other armies to come. He might have thought of himself as a solitary man with only 318 men, so he might have feared he would be swept from the face of the earth. But the Lord came and said, Fear not, Abram. That is the first time those often repeated words, Fear not, occur in the Bible. Fear not, Abram. 
I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Genesis chapter 15 verse 1. I would rather have that promise than all the armies of earth and all the navies of the world to protect me, to have the God of heaven for my protector. God was teaching Abram that he was to be his friend and his shield if he would surrender himself wholly to his keeping and trust in his goodness. That is what we need, to surrender ourselves up to God fully and entirely. In Colorado, the superintendent of some works told me of a miner who was promoted. He went to the superintendent and said, There is a man who has seven children, and I have only three. He is having a hard struggle. Don't promote me, but promote him. I know of nothing that speaks louder for Christ and Christianity than to see a man or woman giving up what they call their rights for others and with honor preferring one another. Romans chapter 12 verse 10. We find that Abram was constantly surrendering his own selfish interests and trusting God. What was the result? Of all the men who ever lived, he is the most renowned. He never did anything the world would call great. The largest army he ever mustered was 318 men. How Alexander the Great would have sneered at such an army as that. How Caesar would have looked down on such an army. How Napoleon would have curled his lip as he thought of Abram with an army of 318. We are not told that he was a great astronomer. We are not told that he was a great scientist. We are not told that he was a great statesman or anything this world calls great. But there was one thing he could do. He could live an unselfish life and in honor waive his rights. In that way, he became the friend of God, and in that way, he has become immortal. There is no name in history as well known as the name of Abram. Even Christ is not more widely known, for the Muslims, the Persians, and the Egyptians make a great deal of Abram. His name has been favorably known in Damascus for centuries and centuries. God promised him that great men, warriors, kings, and emperors would spring from his loins. Was there ever a nation that has turned out such men? Think of Moses, Joseph, Joshua, Caleb, Samuel, David, Solomon, and Elisha. Think of Elijah, Daniel, Isaiah, and all the other wonderful Bible characters who have descended from this man. Then think of Peter, James, John, Paul, and John the Baptist, a mighty army. No one can number the multitude of wonderful men who have originated from this one man who was called out of the land of the Chaldeans, unknown and probably an idolater when God called him. Yet God has literally fulfilled his promise that through him he would bless all the nations of the earth, all because Abram surrendered himself completely to let God bless him. Abraham's Fourth Surrender the last surrender is perhaps the most touching and the hardest of all to understand. Perhaps he could not have endured it until the evening of life. God had been taking him along step by step until he had reached a place where he had learned to fully obey whatever God told him to do. I believe the world has yet to see what God will do with the man who was perfectly surrendered to him. Next to God's own son, Abraham was perhaps the man who came nearest to this standard. For twenty-five years, Abraham had been in the promised land without the promised heir. God had promised that he would bless all the nations of the earth through him, and yet he did not give him a son. Abram's faith almost staggered a number of times. Ishmael was born, but God set aside the son of the bondwoman, for he was not to be the ancestor of the Son of God. 
God was setting Abraham apart in order to prepare the way for his own son, and at last a messenger came down from heaven to Hebron and told Abraham in his old age that he would have a son. It seemed too good to be true. He struggled to believe it, but at the appointed time Isaac was born into that family. I don't believe there was ever a child born into the world that caused so much joy in the home as Isaac did in Abraham's heart and home. How Abraham and that old mother Sarah must have adored that child! How their eyes feasted on him! But just when the boy was growing into manhood, Abraham received another very strange command for another surrender, that of his only son. Perhaps he was making an idol of that boy and thought more of him than he did of the God who gave him. There must be no idol in the heart if we are going to do the will of God on earth. I can imagine that one night the old patriarch went to bed worn out and weary. The boy had gone fast to sleep, when suddenly a heavenly messenger came and told Abraham that he must take that boy off to a mountain that God was to show him and offer him as a sacrifice. No more sleep that night. If we had looked into that tent the next morning, I can imagine we would have seen the servants flying around and preparing for the master's long journey. Maybe Abraham kept the secret locked up in his heart and didn't even tell Sarah or Isaac. He didn't tell the servants, even the faithful servant Eliezer, what was to take place. About eight o'clock in the morning, we might have seen those four men, Abraham, Isaac, and the two young men with them, begin the long journey. Once in a while, Abraham might have turned his head aside and wiped away a tear. He wouldn't want Isaac to see what a terrible struggle was going on within him. It was a hard battle to give up his will and surrender that boy, the idol of his life. Oh, how he loved him! I can imagine the first night. The boy soon fell asleep, tired and weary from the hot day's journey, but the old man couldn't sleep. I can see him look into the face of the innocent boy and say, Soon my boy will be gone and I will be returning without him. Perhaps most of the night his voice would have been heard in prayer as he cried to God to help him, and as God had helped him in the past, so God helped him that night. The next day they journeyed on, and again Abraham suffered a terrible conflict. Again he brushed away a tear. Perhaps Isaac saw it and thought, Father is going away to meet his God, and the angels may come down and talk with him as at Hebron. That is what he is so distressed about. The second night came, and the old man looked into that face every hour of the night. He slept a little, but not much, and the next morning at family worship he broke down. He could not finish his prayer. They journeyed on that day. It was a long day, and the old patriarch said, This is the last day I am to have my boy with me. Tomorrow I must offer him up. Tomorrow I will be without the son of my bosom. The third night came, and what a night it must have been. I can imagine he didn't eat or sleep that night. Nothing was going to break his fast, and every hour of the night he went to look into the face of that boy. Once in a while he bent over and kissed him and said, Oh, Isaac, how can I give you up? Then the morning broke. What a morning it must have been for that father. He didn't eat. He tried to pray, but his voice faltered. After breakfast, they started on their journey again. He had not gone far before he lifted up his eyes and saw Mount Moriah. His heart began to beat quickly. He said to the two young men, You stay here, and I will go over there with my son. Then, as father and son went up Mount Moriah with the wood, the fire, and the knife, the boy suddenly turned to his father and said, Father, where is the lamb? 
We haven't any offering, father. It was a common thing for Isaac to see his father offer up a victim, but there was no lamb this time. Consider how prophetic that answer was when Abraham turned and said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Genesis chapter 22, verse 8. I don't know that Abraham understood the full meaning of it, but a few hundred years later, God did provide a sacrifice right there. Mount Moriah and Mount Calvary are close together, and God's Son was provided as a sacrifice for the world. On Mount Moriah, this father and son began to roll up the stones, and together they built the altar. They laid the wood on it, and everything was ready for the victim. Isaac looked around to see where the lamb was, and the father could keep it from the son no longer. Abraham said, My boy, sit down here close to the altar, and let me tell you something. Then that old white-haired patriarch might have put his arm around his son and told how God came to him in the land of the Chaldeans. He might have told Isaac the story of his whole life, and how by one promise after another God had kept enlarging the promised blessings, that he would bless all the nations of the earth through him. Isaac was to be the heir, but Abraham said, My son, the last night I was at home, God came to me in the late hours of the night and told me to bring you here and offer you up as a sacrifice. I don't understand what it means, but I can tell you one thing. It is much harder for me to offer you than it would be for me to be sacrificed myself. There was a time when I used to think more of the love of Jesus Christ than of God the Father. I used to think of God as a stern judge on the throne from whose wrath Jesus Christ had saved me. It seems to me now that my idea of God could not have been more wrong. Since I have become a father, I have made the discovery that it takes more love and self-sacrifice for the father to give the son up than it does for the son to die. Is a father on earth a true father if he would not rather suffer than to see his child suffer? Do you think that it did not cost God something to redeem this world? It cost God the most precious possession he ever had. When God gave his son, he gave all, and yet he gave him freely for you and me. I can imagine that Abraham talked to Isaac and told him how hard it was to offer him up. But God has commanded it, he said, and I surrender my will to God's will. I don't understand it, but I believe that God will be able to raise you up, and maybe he will. I imagine they fell on their faces and prayed together. After prayer, I can see that old father take his boy to his chest and embrace him for the last time. He kissed and kissed him. Then he took those hands that were so innocent and bound them. He bound Isaac's feet, tied him up, laid him on the altar, and gave him one last kiss. Then he took the knife and raised his hand. No sooner was the hand lifted than a voice from heaven called, Abraham, Abraham, lay not thine hand upon the lad. Genesis chapter 22, verses 11 through 12. Do you remember when Christ said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad? John chapter 8, verse 56. I have an idea that God then and there lifted the curtain of time for Abraham. He looked down into the future and saw God's Son coming up Calvary, bearing his sins and the sins of all future generations. God gave him that secret and told him how his son was to come into the world and take away his sins. Now, my friends, whenever God has been calling me to higher service, there has always been a conflict with my will. I have fought against it, 
but God's will has been done instead of mine. When I came to Jesus Christ, I had a terrible battle to surrender my will and to accept God's will. When I gave up business, I had another battle for three months. I fought against it. It was a terrible battle, but many times I have thanked God that I gave up my will and accepted His will. Then there was another time when God was calling me into higher service to go out and preach the gospel all over the land instead of staying in Chicago. I fought against it for months, but the best thing I ever did was when I surrendered my will and let the will of God be done in me. Because Abraham obeyed God and did not even hold back his only child, God enlarged his promises once again. Scripture And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, and said, By myself I have sworn, said the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed, as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the Gentiles of the earth be blessed, because thou hast hearkened unto my voice. Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18. If you take my advice, you will have no will other than God's will. Make a full and complete surrender, and the sweet messages of heaven will come to you. God will whisper into your soul the secrets of heaven. After Abraham obeyed God, then it was that God may have told his friend all about his son. If we make a full surrender, God will give us something better than we have ever known before. We will get a new vision of Jesus Christ, and we will thank God not only in this life, but in the life to come. May God help each and every one of us to make a full, complete, and unconditional surrender to Him now and forever.